0: Dear Father, please be with us now as we look through the book of James, uh, which many people see as a contradictory book from what we've just been talking about with the writings of Paul, that all that you ask is that we trust you. So help us to understand and uh, perhaps come to a clearer understanding of what you ask of us. Amen. All right. Well, there was, um, you know, we went through Hebrews two weeks ago and uh, I was just thinking about it. There's a couple points that I thought we'll never have a chance to talk about later. So very quickly, I wanted to just look at a couple different difficult verses in Hebrews. And maybe just see what you think about this. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. This would actually be helpful to see how your different versions have this. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more a sacrifice for sins. You can tell this is an older version here, American Standard but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which shall devour the adversaries. Now, first of all, have any of you received the knowledge of the truth? Um, If you have, have any of you sinned willfully this morning, today? I mean, um, these verses can be very, very discouraging. Uh, Let me just show a couple of others that are very similar to this and maybe see how your translations have this. Um, Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6. But what about people who turn away after they have already seen the light and have received the gift from heaven and have shared in the Holy Spirit? What about those who turn away after they have received the good message of God and the powers of the future world? There's no way to bring them back. What they are doing is the same as nailing the Son of God to a cross and insulting Him in public. So if you've ever known anyone that once was in the truth... And then that person fell away. This would suggest there is no way to bring them back. Sounds pretty discouraging. Well, what about this one in First John 5? We are well aware that no one who is a child of God sins. Are we children of God? Because he who is born from God protects him, and the evil one has no hold over him. And you see, if we put enough of these verses together, that it can look... Pretty, pretty depressing. Let me just see. Do any of you have a different way here of uh, this one in Hebrews? Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. If we sin willfully, there's no more sacrifice for sins. Okay, that that's the NIV. And uh, do you have anything different there? NIV? Is that what you're using too? Okay. Yeah, but but what, what were the key words there that distinguished what you just read from this? It's if we keep on sinning. And that's... Um, I have the Amplified here, for if we go on deliberately and willingly sinning, after once acquiring the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice left to atone for our sins. And sin, remember, is rebellion, distrust. And if we go on in a rebellious, distrustful relationship, then what can God do? And all of these have a similar flavor here. Hebrews 6... If people turn away after having a knowledge of the truth, too late for them. And I'll just put up here, this is the Jewish uh, New Testament, which says that, For when people have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become sharers in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of God's Word and the powers of the future world, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them so that they turn from their sin as long as for themselves they keep executing or keep on executing the Son of God on the stake all over again and keep holding him to public contempt. So it's not that God says one time and you're out, but if you just keep on resisting, resisting, refusing to trust, refusing to rebel. I mean, couldn't we make a list right now of 20 people in the Bible who were with God, who rebelled, and then God took them back, right? So it's not a once out and, and it's all over. And the one in First John, no one who is a child of God sins Man, that's a, talk about an intimidating verse. Hey, okay, let's look at another version here. We know that no children of God keep on sinning. All right, so it is to persist in rebellion, distrust. And uh, that that's the meaning. Well, what did Peter ask Jesus? How many times should I forgive my enemy? And he thought he was being pretty generous. Seven times? No, 70 times seven. So... Um, I, the, the one reason I think for pointing out those verses is if you come across something that doesn't make sense, it doesn't seem to fit with your picture of God as revealed by Jesus, read it in the context, the whole, read several chapters around it, but go to different translations also. Because this is really a translational issue. And many versions, uh, the, the one I read is contemporary English. That's a very modern translation, but it, it's somewhat misleading. Well, let's get in here a little bit to James. Um, It starts out, My friends, consider yourselves fortunate when all kinds of trials come your way. Boards, whatever. (laughs) Fortunate. For you know that when your faith succeeds in facing such trials, the result is the ability to endure. Make sure that your endurance carries you all the way without failing so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Um, I didn't put all of the parallel verses here, but remember we read last... Uh, two weeks ago, about Jesus who was made perfect through suffering, and we are to share in his character by our life in this difficult world, and in Romans also. Okay, then it goes on, and here's what I want to talk about a little bit. But if any of you lack wisdom, you should pray to God, who will give it to you, because God gives generously and graciously to all. Um, Could you put your finger on uh, wisdom what, um, this is a real theme in James, and he comes back later and talks about wisdom. Of course, Proverbs, we have a lot of talk about wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians, so many different places, he's not talking about test-taking ability necessarily, but uh, what, uh, what kind of wisdom should we ask for when we ask God for wisdom? Right, I agree. We have a, an inner barometer of right and wrong and making good choices. But what is it that God... Gives us, that, gives us that barometer of helping to make us uh, make good choices, would you say? Or could we maybe say it in another word or expression? We want wisdom, so we make good choices. What are we really hoping to see? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, which is, I think, very much involved here. Um, and what does the Holy Spirit bring us? Truth about God, so the ultimate barometer I think for us is that we internalize God is like this and we come closer and closer and closer and closer to the reality of what God is like and then that becomes the ultimate way that we can distinguish everything that goes on around us. I won't read these, but in uh, Proverbs, wisdom is defined, you know, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, but what, what do we have when we have wisdom? Well, we learn about God. That's the basis of it. And then you will know what is right, just, And fair, you will know what you should do, just like with uh, what you said there. Okay, but it's based on learning about God. And in Proverbs 9, to be wise, you must first have reverence for the Lord. Okay, we know that we're familiar with that, but notice this. If you know the Holy One, you have understanding. It is based on the knowledge of God. And Paul puts all this together in 1 Corinthians, but God has brought you into union with Christ Jesus, and God has made Christ. To be our wisdom. That's the ultimate wisdom, is to know Christ, his character. And he goes on, as the scripture says, who knows the mind of the Lord? Who's able to give him advice? We, however, have the mind of Christ. Okay, that's, that's what we should be longing for. That's the wisdom. And as James goes on, I think that he's ultimately um, talking about, we have the mind of Christ. We're thinking like him. We're making decisions like Christ did. And to tie in with what you brought up about the Holy Spirit. Now, we we like to read this part, but we often don't read the rest of the chapter, where Jesus said, And so I say to you, Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For those who ask will receive, and those who seek will find, and the door will be opened to anyone who knocks. And we maybe apply that to anything, whatever it is that we might want, but just read on. What are we to ask for? What are we to seek for? Well, as bad as you are, you know how to give good things to your children. How much more then will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the ultimate thing to ask for is the Holy Spirit, which brings us a knowledge of God, which brings us Christ. And so I think that's why God was so delighted when Solomon asked for wisdom. And here, what are we to ask for now in our time? Wisdom. But which, that wisdom ultimately is to have Christ within And James goes on here in in chapter 3 to describe a wise person or what we should be like. Are there any of you who are wise and understanding? You are to prove it by your good life, by your good deeds performed with humility and wisdom. But if in your heart you are jealous, bitter, and selfish, don't sin against the truth by boasting of your wisdom. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It belongs to the world. It is unspiritual and demonic. Where there is jealousy and selfishness, there is also disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above, now notice, this is how a wise person will act. is pure, first of all. It is also peaceful, gentle, friendly. It's full of compassion and produces a harvest of good deeds. Isn't this sounding like the fruits of the Spirit uh, that we read about in Galatians? It's free from prejudice and hypocrisy. And goodness is the harvest that is produced from the seeds that the peacemakers plant. Okay, so um, I think this, these are the fruits of having Christ within, of having the Holy Spirit. And I love this one in the end of Proverbs. These are the solemn words of Agur. And notice what he says. God is not with me. God is not with me. And I am helpless. I'm more like an animal than a human being. I don't have the sense we humans should have. Okay, Notice the definition. I have never learned any wisdom, and I know nothing at all about God. Okay, so to not know God is to be a fool. To know God is to be wise, in this kind of a poetic way of expressing it here. All right, well, let's, let's come back here to James. And this is the heart of what we want to talk about here, because um, you know, Luther was, was not real fond of James, because it seemed to contradict uh, what Paul had been saying. And it's, it's because James talks about actions, doing things. So in James 2.14, my friends, what good is it for one of you to say that you have faith if your actions do not prove it? Can that faith save you? Suppose there are brothers or sisters who need clothes and don't have enough to eat. What good is there in your saying to them, God bless you, keep warm, and eat well, if you don't give them the necessities of life? So it is with faith. If it is alone and includes no actions, then it is dead. But someone will say, one person has faith, another has actions. My answer is, show me how anyone can have faith without actions. I will show you my faith by my actions. And now he gives a couple examples. Do you believe that there's only one God? Do you trust there's only one God? Good. The demons also believe and tremble with fear. That's not the kind of trust we want to have. Satan believes in God. That doesn't do him any good. He doesn't trust him in, in the more intimate, personal, relational sense. You fool. Do you want to be shown that faith without actions is useless? How was our ancestor Abraham put right with God? Well, we just read. He was put right through his trust. Right? Paul said that several times. But what does James say? It was through his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Can't you see? His faith and his actions work together. His faith was made perfect through his actions. And the scripture came true that said, Abraham believed God and because of his faith, trust, God accepted him as righteous. And so Abraham was called God's friend. You see then that it is by our actions that we are put right with God, and not by our faith alone. It was the same with the prostitute Rahab. She was put right with God through her actions, by welcoming the Israelite spies and helping them to escape by a different road. So then as the body without the spirit is dead, also faith without actions is dead." Okay, now we skip over to Paul Romans 3. And he concludes that a person is put right with God only through faith. And not by doing what the law commands, not by actions. God is one and he will put the Jews right with himself on the basis of their faith. And he'll put the Gentiles right through their faith. So is there a, a contradiction here between being put right only through faith? And again, going back here to James Giving examples, it was by the actions that they were put right with God. Um, you think James and Paul disagree? Or would, would Paul read the book of James and say, you know, right on? Yeah, I like that. He never says um, that it is by your actions only that you're put right with God. Um, so I agree. Any other comments on that? Dorothy? Yeah, if you really had genuine faith, could, would it be possible not to have actions? Um, you might have heard me tell the story of a patient who had uh, atrial fibrillation and had uh, three TIAs, and I saw him, you know, after the first one, and said, "You've got to go on Coumadin. You know, I'm I'm pretty confident you're going to have a stroke if you don't go on Coumadin." Um, okay, Dr. Cole, you know, I trust you. I mean, he didn't say that, but he implied. Okay, makes sense. But he didn't take his Coumadin. And I saw him after the next TIA and again told him, you've got to take your Coumadin. He was seeing an alternative medicine doctor to try to thin his blood. So with words, he said, I trust you. But did he really trust me? I mean, if he really trusted me, he would have taken the Coumadin. So the evidence that he had no trust was that his actions didn't follow through, right? So the actions are just the evidence, like you said, the downstream effect that shows there is a trusting relationship there. So I think that's where it's dangerous if we start to do actions without trust. It is based on our trust. But notice, now, this is not fair, but I left off the last verse here of this passage in Romans, where Paul goes on. Well then, if we emphasize faith, trust, does that mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. And notice this line, in fact, only when we have faith do we truly have actions. So I think Paul makes the important point. Step one is we see the good news. We love that God is that way and we trust him. But then the outflow of that is when we have that trust, then the actions uh, correspond with it. And so I think there's no disharmony uh, between these here. And in fact, notice how the book of Romans opens up in Romans 1 5, talking about Jesus. Through him, God gave me the privilege of being an apostle for the sake of Christ in order to lead people of all nations to believe and obey, to trust and obey. Paul's not saying, don't obey. And then the Galatians concludes, 6.15, What counts is whether we really have been changed into new and different people. So Paul's not de-emphasizing at all that we shouldn't be having actions. He's just telling us how that, what that arises from. And then John would say in 1 John 3.14, we know that we've left death and come over to life. We know it because we love others. Hey, okay? What's the evidence that we're Christian? We love others. Those who do not love are still under the power of death. And um, Paul concluded in Romans 13... The only obligation we have in summarizing all these commandments, they're all summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That is the action that we are to have. If you love others, you'll never do them wrong. To love them is to obey the whole law. That's the action. And uh, James completely agrees. Look at this, James 2.8. You will be doing the right thing if you obey the law of the kingdom, which is found in the scripture, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I think they're saying exactly the same thing. James perhaps came along later and was seeing people who were misusing perhaps this trust and said, no, 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 it, 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 if there's real trust, there is real love and actions as exhibited by um, loving your neighbor. Um, I showed this picture here when we talked about acts and tongues of fire. You know, it's interesting in the Bible how many times there are contrasting things like the sacrificial system which was to point to the Messiah, um, but it was also to show us the severe nature of the sin problem. The cross, beautiful, beautiful revelation of God's character, horrible nature of sin. Fire, our God is a consuming fire. And mm-hmm. in so many places, the, you know, Isaiah, his, coal was, his tongue was touched with coal, and then he had a pure message to give. Fire is a good thing, but fire is a bad thing too. Um, I think it's interesting to put all these together And uh, James talks about the fire as the tongue. And he says, All of us often make mistakes, but if a person never makes a mistake in what he says, he is perfect and is also able to control his whole being. We put a bit into the mouth of a horse to make it obey us, and we are able to make it go where we want. Or think of a ship, big as it is and driven by such strong winds, it can be steered by a very small rudder, and it goes wherever the pilot wants it to go. So it is with the tongue. Small as it is, it can boast about great things. Just think how large a forest can be set on fire by a tiny flame. And the tongue is like a fire. It is a world of wrong, occupying its place in our bodies and spreading evil through our whole being. It sets on fire the entire course of our existence with the fire that comes to it from hell itself. Isn't that interesting? We humans are able to tame and have tamed all other creatures, wild animals and birds, reptiles and fish, but no one has ever been able to tame the tongue. It is evil and uncontrollable, full of deadly poison. We use it to give thanks to our Lord and Father and also to curse other people who are created in the likeness of God. Words of thanksgiving and cursing pour out from the same mouth. My friends, this should not happen. And then he gives an illustration of what he means by the tongue. Do not criticize one another, my friends. Isn't it amazing how often we... This comes up in Romans, and Hebrews. Do not judge others. Do not criticize others. How many times did Jesus say, you know, you see the log or the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you don't see the log in your own eye? Don't criticize. And here it is again. Don't criticize one another, my friends. If you criticize or judge another Christian, you criticize and judge the law. If you judge the law, then you are no longer one who obeys the law, but one who judges it. God is the only lawgiver and judge. He alone can save and destroy. Who do you think you are to judge someone else? Now, why do you think, what's so bad about judging and condemning other people? Is it such a bad thing? Is the Bible. I mean, is it just that God doesn't like it if we do that? Or like it suggests here, if you judge and condemn, you destroy yourself. How, do you, how does that work, do you think? Yeah, have you ever um, judged someone for something and you thought about it in a while and you, you thought about something in the exact same area that you have done much, much worse than that person that you have been for two days just totally berating them in your mind? And um, yeah. So And also, I think we have an acuity more for seeing the faults in others that are that are within ourselves. Those are the ones that we just come out with the greatest anger about. So usually when you see that in someone else, it, it's something that is, that is inside ourselves. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Why do you think we judge others? Why do you think it is so, or am I just speaking for myself, but, but why do you think it is so um, natural for us to judge and condemn? It just seems like um, it's just a part of who we are. We see something and, you know, put that uh, person down. And it doesn't necessarily be the tongue. Doesn't mean necessarily speak it, but in our mind we're thinking that way. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When we judge and condemn someone else, what do we feel immediately? It's a little bit. We feel good for a while, right? Because they're down, I'm up. And uh, I think that's it's it's the whole survival of the fittest mentality, and it is exactly the opposite of the other-centered way that we're supposed to be. And what happens is we end up, if you continue in this, feeding self, feeding self by pushing, pushing, pushing other people down, that eventually you yourself are built up to such a level that it almost becomes impossible to satisfy that. You know That is why we give up all and we become like Jesus, nothing, basically. Um, and in, in our love, and our other-centeredness, self is completely crucified. Yeah, now Jesus did that, right? You hypocrites. And um, I think that's a, that's a good question. What do you think? What's the difference? You have a motive if, if we really are loving that person. I mean, usually when we judge and condemn, um, aren't we really hating the person as we do that? And uh, when Jesus was dying on the cross... Or let's just say when when he was telling people, you hypocrites, do you think he was hating them at the same time? Or did he love them so much and he wanted them so badly to see what they had done or what they were doing that he was willing to use those very hard words um, to reach them? Dorothy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Jesus' harshest words were said face to face with those people. And so I think um, yeah, it should be a rule that we just our rule of life is we do not judge and condemn. and if there is something to be said about someone, uh, really they should be there and present. And um, it's amazing how often, I don't know, have you ever written an email and uh, you said something about someone else, you didn't even realize necessarily that it was anything bad, and you reply all. And then um, you know you realize that that person was actually on the list, and you hadn't even thought that you were saying anything necessarily that bad about the person, but then when you realize they're reading what you just wrote about them... Oh, wait, maybe it's only me again. But anyway, these things... Um, yeah, everything should be open. Our thoughts and actions, words should be... We should be comfortable with anyone viewing them. Well, this verse in Proverbs here, and Hebrew poetry is so interesting. But the tongues of those who are upright and in right standing with God, are as choice silver. The minds of those who are wicked and out of harmony with God are of little value. And I just wanted to make the point here in the parallel that it is not, yes, the speaking is very, very harmful, um, but really our internal thought world, the tongue also uh, would include that as well. Now, I'm not sure here, in the interest of time, I, I looked up... Uh, to see what Ellen White had it to say about these tongues and fire. And it's interesting. Her advice on this is to couples, um, at least five or six, to married couples. And uh, I thought these were kind of interesting. She said, If you would bear in mind that whatever measure you meet to others, it shall be meted to you again. You would be more cautious in your speech, milder and more forgiving in your disposition. Christ came into the world to bring all resistance and authority into subjection to himself. But he did not claim obedience through the strength of argument or the voice of command. He went about doing good and teaching his followers the things which belonged to their peace. He stirred up no strife. He resented no personal injuries but met with meek submissions, the insults, the false accusations, and the cruel scourging of those who hated him and condemned him to death. Christ is our example. His life is a practical illustration of his divine teachings. His character is a living exhibition of the way to do good and overcome evil. Now, here here is the advice to these people. You have nursed your resentment against your husband and others who have wronged you, but have failed to perceive wherein you have erred and made matters worse by your own wrong course. Your spirit has been bitter against those who have done you injustice, and your feelings have found vent in reproaches and censure. This would give momentary relief to your burdened heart. Notice you feel good a little bit when you do that but it has left a lasting scar upon your soul. That's judging others is very harmful to our own character. The tongue is a little member, but you have cultivated its improper use until it has become a consuming fire. And um, the, the next one here is also very good, just discussing here a conflict between the husband and wife. Uh, maybe I'll just uh, I'll leave it up there on the uh, the website if you want to look at it. It's a good quote. But... I want to make just a brief point here in closing about fire. First of all, in James 5, carrying on with this theme, And now you rich people, listen to me, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted away and your clothes have been eaten by moths. Your gold and silver are covered with rust, and this rust will be a witness against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have piled up riches in these last days. And I think the meaning here is your character is completely corrupted. And this rebellious, distrustful character will eat up your flesh like fire. Now, I just have to make the point about fire here. We have two examples in James about fire. And we read through Revelation. And here's a long list of just lots of things that show up in Revelations. Horns, beasts, dragons, olive trees, seven of many things, a great prostitute, frogs, a mark of the beast... And what's the one thing that we frequently take as, no, that is real. That is not symbolic. That's real. It's the fire. Well, um, I would say I've come to the strong conviction myself, uh, which is that God does not win this whole great controversy through the revelation of his character. God is love. He's just like Jesus. Um, And then ends it, By burning to death the opposition. Feel that there is another way of looking at this. And the book of Revelation, the symbols here, the alphabet for this, is the whole rest of the Bible. Let me just give you an example. Let's read Revelation 20 uh, just as an example of this. I saw heaven standing open. There was a white horse and its rider is named Faithful and True. With integrity he judges and wages war. His eyes are flames of fire. Now, describing Jesus coming back, most of the paintings don't have him on a white horse. And he's called Faithful and True. Now, are these things literal or is this meaning for us? On his head are many crowns. Um, Will he really come back with many crowns? Or is this meaning for us? He has a name written on him, but only he knows what it is. This is very significant. But again, it is the meaning. He wears clothes dipped in blood. When Jesus comes back, will his clothes be actually dipped in blood? Or is this meaning? And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven, wearing pure white linen, follow him on white horses. Um, I've never seen a painting of Jesus coming back with all the angels on horses. Um, Is this literal or does this have meaning? How about this? A sharp sword comes out of his mouth to defeat the nations. Will Jesus come back with an actual sword out of his mouth? Uh, he will rule them with an iron scepter and tread the winepress of the fierce anger of God Almighty. Again, rich with meaning there. On his clothes and his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, when he comes back, will he actually have uh, this description here and something written on his thigh? I saw an angel standing in the sun or on the sun. He cried out in a loud voice, to all the birds flying overhead, come, gather for the great banquet of God. Eat the flesh of kings, generals, warriors, horses, and their riders, and all the free people and slaves, both important or insignificant people. Okay, now, will there actually be an angel standing on the sun? And will there actually be birds that will come and consume the flesh of the people at the second coming? Or does this have meaning? This brings us back to Jeremiah 7 which describes this whole process of the birds eating the flesh. should bring us back to our Old Testament. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. The beast and the false prophet, who had done miracles for the beast, were captured. By these miracles, the false prophet had deceived those who had the brand of the beast and worshipped its statue. Again, every single thing in here, is a symbol that has very, very deep meaning. Now, both of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, as we understand the false prophet, this is a system, a false religious system of persecution. And uh, how do you throw a system into a lake of fire? Or the beast? What's our understanding of the meaning of the beast? Well, those things are thrown into the lake of fire. But the rider on the horse killed the rest with the sword that came out of his mouth. So some are apparently thrown into a lake of fire. Some apparently are killed by a sword. We take it literally, or again, what is the meaning? And then finally, after they're all burned up in this lake of fire, all the birds gorged themselves on the flesh of those who had been killed. So um, I, I personally, and, and I don't know of too many things that, that get people riled up more strongly to suggest... That God does not come back and uh, burn people for an appropriate period of time. Uh, Of course, we often come saying, We have good news that doesn't last forever. It's not forever. Um, Great good news. He'll only burn you for who knows how long. And we imagine God torturing people for minutes, hours. I mean, you know, if we're exposed to fire, we just die in a second, right? So that God would perform a miracle to keep someone alive in the fire. Um, I think we look up fire all the way through the Bible. Um, there is, it is a rich meaning. God is a fire. But notice, evil was burning like a fire in Isaiah. And again in Isaiah 10, In their bodies there will be a fire that burns and burns, describing the very serious defects of character. And Ezekiel 28, this is the whole chapter that talks about Satan walking among the coals of fire when he was still Lucifer. But then we read on. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. So how does he die? So I brought fire from within you, and it consumed you. Yeah, I think, again, that adds to our meaning. And uh, this one in Isaiah is so power-packed. Isaiah 33. But the Lord says, Now I will do something and be greatly praised. Notice, Your deeds are straw that will be set on fire by your very own breath. You will be burned to ashes like thorns in a fire. Everyone, both far and near, come look at what I have done. See my mighty power. Now notice this. The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling, grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who is the consuming fire? God himself is the fire. Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? That's God. But notice, he who walks righteously and speaks what is right. And it goes on to describe a person who has a new heart and a right spirit being perfectly comfortable dwelling in the fire of God himself. And uh, maybe just this last one here in Psalm 68. As wax melts in front of the fire, so do the wicked perish in his presence. But the righteous are glad and rejoice in his presence. Notice, in his presence they are happy and shout for joy. So for some, in the presence of God, it's a tortuous experience. uh, But for others, it is wonderful. And I think that's the meaning here in Revelation 14. I'm sorry, I'm going through this so quickly here. But um, where we have this description of those who have the mark of the beast and whose wrath God pours out on him. Notice here, then this person will be tortured by fiery sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. So do we take this to mean that the angels and the Lamb will be standing in the fire, in the sulfur, in the fire? Or isn't this meaning that some people are extremely uncomfortable, tortured by the very presence of the God who is love? And I think this is why, personally, I believe that Ellen White saw the same thing, that John saw this whole symbolic description of this fire, and some suffer longer than others in the presence of God. But I think, uh, I think there is rich to explore all of this. Um, I believe, and for myself, that, um, that this is rich with meaning and that when we understand what this fire is and what actually happens, God ends up looking very good and not as one who comes back to torture the opposition for, for a period of time. We should talk about this more later. All right, why don't we pray in conclusion. <clears throat> Dear Father, thank you so much for so much evidence that you have given us through Scripture and that you, it seems, will stoop to any means to reach people who are afraid of you, may harden people even who, who are not close at all. You will reach them even with fearful words. But we know that... Perfect love casts out all fear, and that as we come to you and we see who you are, perfect love, that we will eventually conclude that even if we are your enemy, that there is no reason to be afraid of you. Thank you for all this evidence about who you are. Amen.